So for the past few weeks, we've been talking about transformation and how God um, changes us from who we were into who we are becoming. And that's not just like a one-time shot. This is a gradual process that parts of our personality change and then parts of our personality change, and we grow and mature. And what we've been using is the, is the model of the caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. It's the same thing that's in every biology textbook. Everybody sees the, like, the little circle of life that goes from egg to, uh, hey, Colin. Everybody sees the circle of life. There we go. Everybody sees the circle of life. It goes from an egg. And then it's like, okay, I'm an egg. What do I do now? Well, you grow up. Okay, I'm a caterpillar. What do I do now? Well, you grow up. And so when we become believers, all right, what do I do now? Well, you grow up. Well, hey, I'm a mature believer. What do I do? Well, you keep on growing up. None of us ever stop our transformative process. And I also want to reiterate that transformation, like when we talk about transformation, it's not this external uh, system of laws, rules, and regulations that we're trying to like force you into being the people that we want you to be. It's not like, it's not Model T uh, production line. We're not transforming little Christians to be like these automatons. What this is, is this inner change that happens on the inside of us, and it works its way out, outwards. So the law of Moses in the Old Testament was the system of rules, regulations, laws that tried to change your character from the outside in. And Paul says that it was a glory that was fleeting. It's like a, a good suntan. If you go out and get some, get some rays and you get that wonderful little glow and then like four days later, if you're like me, you're back pasty white again. When the sun tries to change you from the outside in, it's only temporary, but if something happens to your DNA because some of us are darker than the others. If something happens to your DNA, it's a change that happens on the inside and works its way out, and it doesn't matter how much sun you get, you are, you are dark from the inside out. And it's a, kind of like if you get an infection in your body and you go to the doctor, do not get antibiotics for viruses, by the way. But if you have a bacterial infection, you can take an antibiotic, and you swallow that pill, and it cleanses you from the inside out. That's what grace is. That's what the gospel does to us. The law is taking that pill bottle and like rubbing it on the side of your head. It's not going to be very effective. See, like grace changes you. Jesus changes you. The law just makes you look like you've got issues. I want to read a verse. Uh, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 15, and we're going to focus on verse 18. Starting in 15, it says, Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings or the law of the Old Testament, their hearts are covered with that veil, and they don't understand. Have you ever read anything out of the Old Testament? It was like, I don't understand that at all. You're not alone. But whenever someone turns to the Lord or turns to Jesus, that veil is taken away. For the Lord is spirit, and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us, believers in Christ, all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. The King James and New King James says that we go from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. It's a never-ending process that God takes us from where we are and changes us. Changes us into what? Into the image of his son. So God is taking us in this maturity process, and he is transforming us to look like the mirror image of Jesus. So if you feel like you don't resemble Jesus in your actions, I'm going to tell you you're wrong, because the Holy Spirit's job is to transform us into Jesus. So I went through a, a good chunk of my life believing that 
God's desire to help me or God's desire to be nice to me revolved around me being impressive. By being praying hard enough or me fasting hard enough, I believe that everything that was good about God was hidden in this box. If you needed God to like save someone in your family, that was hidden in a box. If you needed healing in your body, that was hidden in the box. If you needed God to radically transform your community, that was hidden in a box. And God kept all of this good stuff kind of in a box. And so when we'd say, God, why isn't good stuff happening? It was, well, if you would just pray enough. Well, if you would fast enough. Well, if you would read your Bible enough, I might be, I might be nice to you. And in my mind, this box was called revival. I had the label revival on it. Some people call that box fate or God's sovereignty or karma if you're, if you're in part of another religion. But I believed if I was nice enough or I was passionate enough or I was a good enough Christian, I might reach up into heaven and grab a hold of that revival box. And all of a sudden, we've got revival into our community. God's being nice today. How amazing is that? And do you notice how all of the goodness of God rested on my shoulders? Why is God not changing our community? My fault. And I don't, I don't know that it's, uh, that, that it's quite that simple. And so I started uh, hanging out with uh, one, of my, uh, one of my friends, and I call this the Ben and Amy effect. It seems like most of the transformations that we experience as believers happen through relationships with other people. You know, it's usually not, oh my goodness, I heard a podcast, or I saw a sermon, or I I heard a song. It's usually the friendships that we make that make the lasting change in our hearts. So I started hanging out with my friends Ben and Amy, and I started talking about my revival box and how amazing my revival box was in heaven. And then Ben would say, oh, you mean the revival that started 2,000 years ago and has been going strong ever since? No. No, no, no. I mean, like, when God's like, nice to us. You know, like when God, I would call it, this is a Christian word or phrase for you, he would open the windows of heaven. And I had this mindset that God sometimes would push through the atmosphere and there was a spot on earth that he could be nice at. Every other spot, like if you were, have you ever been out on the river and like everywhere you cast your line, the fish don't bite, but everywhere your buddy like throws in, it's like, what's wrong with my spot? I felt like that about God. And so Ben and Amy would say, well, I don't know what kind of Christianity that you work in, but over me, there's an open heaven. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about a place where God's like nice to us. It's like, right. (laughs) He's always nice. And I can't tell you the day that it happened, but over the course of spending a summer with them, my views changed from God withholding all of the goodness inside the revival box to I started realizing that at the cross and before that, God took that nice box and dumped it upside down over all of humanity, and all that the Lord does all day, every day, was dump his kindness and his goodness and his mercy out on the community. Now, we're the ones that think that there is this box. To God, there's not, there's not a box. Peter said on the, on the day of Pentecost, it said, the spirit of the Lord has poured out over the entire earth. The Old Testament talks about the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. Where are you going to go that God's not being kind to you? There's nowhere. Even David said that if I wake up in hell, God's goodness is always there. There's no place in the universe that we can run from the goodness of God. And so my mindset went from like, man, I felt like my entire Christian life, I was crawling around in the dust trying to get God to be nice to me. And then all of a sudden, it felt like I got wings. Like, 
why in the world didn't anyone tell me this sooner? And like people in my life, man, we've been trying. So if, uh, if the goodness of God and this, this transformation process is so amazing, if it's the bee's knees, how come we're not popping out of cocoons left and right? Well, because change is hard. Does anybody like have uh, resistance to change? Like, hey, we need to remodel the kitchen. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Let's not remodel the kitchen. Imagine a bowling ball sitting on stage over here. You have to put a tremendous amount of effort and energy into that bowling ball to make it start moving. Well, what happens if that bowling ball is already moving? Say you go out bowling with some of your friends. By the way, I'm a horrendous bowler. Don't invite me out bowling. I can count on one hand the number of times that I've hit triple digits. I'm bad. So imagine me. I've got this bowling ball that I have to put a lot of energy into that bowling ball to wind up for a swing. Now, what happens if I let that bowling ball go wrong or let that bowling ball go at the wrong part of my swing? All of a sudden, you have a bowling ball aimed at your head. And it takes a lot of energy to slow that bowling ball down. Smart people just get out of the way because your nose does not have the energy required to slow that ball down. Well, that resistance to change is called inertia. And if something is still, it takes a lot of energy to get it moving. And if something is moving, it takes a lot of energy to change its direction or to change its speed. So we all have this resistance to change. We have mental, spiritual, we have emotional, and we have physical inertia that keeps us from transforming. So let's go back to our butterfly analogy. What are some of the things that, uh, that the caterpillar can use as an excuse to keep from changing? What's going on in the caterpillar's mind? Not much, by the way, other than eat, 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 eat. But what could be going on in the caterpillar's mind to make him re or her make her or him resist the change? Let's talk about something, uh, ignorance. What happens if this caterpillar looks around and looks at all of his caterpillar friends, and his caterpillar friends aren't sprouting wings left and right? And so the caterpillar goes through its entire life I'm a beautiful butterfly. He experiences life as a caterpillar his whole life. He doesn't know that there's anything different. And I think the most devastating thing that we experience as humans is that we don't know what we don't know. I know that sounds like a very deep statement. But I don't know where the landmines are in my life. I don't know where the gold mines are in my life. And because I don't know what I don't know, I can walk through life being the most ignorant person in the face of the planet and I don't know it. I think I'm really smart and intelligent. And all my friends around me are like, buddy, you are not. You are not in that category of amazingly smart and intelligent. That's why we kick ourselves when we think about the past. How many times have you said this? If I only knew then what I know now. How many, cho how many uh, choices would we have made differently if we knew then what we know now? Ignorance will bite us. In Acts 9, we see this religious extremist over in the Middle East. And he spent a good chunk of his life going around murdering Christians in the name of his God. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And as a side note, I want to point out that maybe God has a destiny and a plan for people that we have already given up on. So this religious extremist, this terrorist that was going on his way from one city to another city to plan another act of terrorism, all of a sudden he sees a blinding flash. And in the King James, it's really funny. Read Acts 9, and I promise you, you will snicker if you read it in the King James. So he falls off his donkey. Imagine all the other ways to phrase that. And a whole world of possibilities opens up for this guy named Saul. He once was crawling around in the dust, and in a moment of time, oh my goodness, 
the whole world's opened up to me. So he goes over uh, to this city, and his entire life changed from that point, or it started a process of changing from that point. And then later on in his life, he actually wrote the verses that we just read in 2 Corinthians. So why do we trust Paul when he talks about the transformative process? Because he lived it firsthand. Has anyone ever tried to get you to work on something? It's like, hey, have you ever taken a part of weed eater? No, but you need to listen to me. Look, I'm not going to listen to you. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to go to YouTube because the internet's the source of all true knowledge. So we listen to Paul when he's talking about transformation because he, he experienced it. He knows what he's talking about. So how do we destroy ignorance? Well, we destroy ignorance by learning. We destroy ignorance by reading books, by meeting new people. And so as you're walking through life, we are sitting in a moment of time in the world's history where the universe is literally at our fingertips. I would say get out of your rut. Go buy a book. Go watch a YouTube video. Pick up a new hobby. More importantly, go make a friend with someone that doesn't look like you or thinks like you. And you will be amazed at how God will use that person's experiences to completely revolutionize your life. You start talking to someone, it's like, I've never thought about that before. The friendships that we make change us in irrevocable processes, and that is the Ben and Amy effect lived out. The, the reason why we have meet and greet, the reason why we have small groups to where you can meet the people around you is because God is going to change you through a sermon. God is going to change you through worship and his presence. But the primary way that God transforms our lives is because of this amazing family that we have. Um, so I believe that m most of what we experience through life is just ignorance. The problems that keep us from transforming are ignorance. But ignorance wears different masks. You know, because like any good spy, you know, you have like the Mission Impossible silicone face. It's like, oh my goodness, that was Tom Cruise the whole time. I never knew it. So one of the masks that ignorance wears is the mask of apathy. So the reason why caterpillars eat and eat and eat and eat and eat is not because they're lazy. It's not because they're selfish. It's not because they're gluttonous. It takes a tremendous amount of chemical energy to transform that caterpillar into a butterfly. So the caterpillar spends the first part of its life just absorbing all of this stuff. And like when you look at the transformative process into that amazing, beautiful butterfly, like what happened to the little cute, chubby caterpillar? Well, at some point in time in the sermon, you might become bored. Go ahead and get your phones out and compare the size of a caterpillar to the size of a butterfly. Where did all that cute chubbiness go well, it got burned up, transforming itself into wings. It takes a lot, of, uh, a lot of energy, like we were talking about, to change. But we as humans, our change is a little bit more subtle. And so we eat and we eat and we eat. And we think, hey, my life is going awesome. Why should I change? Or we say things like, eh, I'll get to that later. Or how about this? I'll get to that once my life slows down a little bit. Right, right. When life slows down. After this season, I'll be able to get to, to the shrubs outside. That was like five years ago kind of thing. Well, when I think of apathy, I'm reminded of the, the Pharisees in Jesus' time. They were in charge of the spiritual well-being of the nation of Israel for 400 years. The Pharisees were in charge longer, twice as long as America has even been a country. 400 years. And then some guy shows up. And said, hey, guys, your covenant's about to be over. If everybody's ever been on like a subway or a train line, you come to the end of the line. This train is not going forward anymore. Everybody needs to get off this train 
and get onto the new train. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. He was like, hey, there's about to be a covenant switch. Everybody get off the train into the new train. And the Pharisees were saying, this train has lasted for thousands of years. Who do you think you are, Jesus, to tell us that we need to change? See, Moses, when he gave the covenant, the old covenant was pointing towards Jesus. And then Jesus showed up and said, I'm here. And they said, eh, we'll wait around. And so Jesus changed. And the church broke off from the nation of Israel. What happens if the Pharisees would have known what could have been? See, the reason or the way that we destroy apathy is we fill our hearts with the possibilities of what if. What happens if the Pharisees would have known that instead of just being a thorn in Jesus' side and literally killing him, what happens if they thought, hey, we get the opportunity to shepherd the nation of Israel into a brand new promised land? Like Moses and the patriarchs were like the most amazing thing in our minds. What happens if we get to be the new Moseses? Moses, Mosai. What happens if we get to be the new patriarchs that shepherd the nation of Israel into a new covenant of grace? Don't you think that some of them would have said, man, Jesus, you are awesome. Let's do this. Hey, everybody get off the train. If they would have filled their hearts with the uh, possibilities of what if. And so, uh, like I said, that uh, apathy was just ignorance wearing a different mask. Apathy is the ignorance of the benefits of transformation. We fix that by filling our heart with the possibilities of what if. And see, we as a church, it takes a tremendous amount of change, effort, and energy into producing any kind of change with us as, as a church. But the reason why we change things as a church is because we fill our hearts with the possibility of what if. What if we as a church have the ability to shepherd a group of people that don't know about Jesus, don't care about Jesus, or worse, think that Jesus hates them? What happens if we can reach a group of people through Convoy of Hope that never would have come into church here? What happens if we can say, hey, God's not mad at you. He loves you. What happens if we can come into contact with our culture outside these walls and shepherd Cookville into this covenant change? That's the reason why we update things. That's the reason why we change the way we format how we present the gospel. We never change the message, but we're always changing the methods because what if we can reach a new generation that's not been, uh, not been uh, reached yet? Another mask that uh, ignorance wears is the mask of fear. Fear is one of the strongest motivators that move us as humans. That's why the news uses it all the time. Something in your home is killing you. More to night at nine. It's like, oh, I guess I'll have to tune in. We're about to walk into a season in American politics where we are going to be bombarded by uh, fear. Everybody is going to be letting you know, hey, you need to be afraid. You need to be afraid. You need to be afraid. Why? Because it's the cheapest form of advertisement that we have. When we become afraid, our frontal cortex, the part that makes us normal human beings, the part that lets us think about things, the part of our brain that helps us problem solve, shuts down. And we make idiot choices. I've got a video for you that kind of lets you know what the face of fear looks like. So this is a glass bottom bridge in China. It's hundreds of feet down. Oh gosh. I don't want to change. I don't want to change. How about this? Oh, just 
hold on to the rock. <laughs> I hope in my life I never had the opportunity to do that because I would lock up. We were changing out something up here, and we have this big ladder that we use to change out the light bulbs. And the, it's the first time I'd ever gotten up the ladder, and I got about halfway up the ladder, and I just locked up. I wasn't afraid. I just couldn't move my muscles. It's like, Justin, do you need help? No, I'm good. Do you want to come down? Mm-mm, I'm good. And so one of my friends got up to the ladder, and that, you know, inspired that. Well, I'm not going to be the only one at the bottom of this ladder, so I crawled up it. But fear removes your ability to act like a normal human being. I think of Judas when he, was, uh, when he sold out Jesus, when he betrayed Jesus. He walked with Jesus. Jesus put him in charge of the bank accounts, knowing that he was embezzling anything, and he was still afraid of Jesus. He was afraid of the Pharisees. He was afraid of what the nation of Israel thought about him. He sold out one of his best friends. Fear will make you trip one of your friends in order to outrun a bear. I don't have to run faster than the bear. I just have to run faster than you. So why are we afraid? Well, imagine the caterpillar. Going back to the caterpillar's life, you know, he just starts this process. And he thinks, hey, I'm a pretty good caterpillar. Hey, Professor Butterfly, Professor Fly. Why don't you tell me what this transformation process looks like? Professor Fly goes, oh, it's easy. You build a cocoon, and then your body releases enzymes. And those enzymes digest your body so that the soup of who you once were, your DNA reorders your protein synthesis, and you 3D print a butterfly's body out of the digestive soup that you once were. I didn't sign up for digestion all of a sudden, wings don't seem like that, that big of a deal. But the reason why we fear the unknown, we fear the process, we fear the outcome, we think that God's transformation process looks like that caterpillar's process. We think in order to give us wings, God has to rip off our arms. We use it in the language that we use. Like, have, has anyone ever said, hey, yeah, God's really laid this on my heart? And have you ever heard anyone say, man, God just beat me across the head with this? Really? Did he beat you across the head with an opportunity to change? Man, it was like God took a brick to my head. Really? Is that really what the, the process looked like? See, the amazing thing about the gospel is that the transformation process happened at the cross. We already have our wings, so the transformation process is not God liquefying us. We were liquefied in Christ. He went through that pain so that we don't have to, and the transformation process for us looks like God going, baby, you already got wings. Start, start flying. It's like, I have wings. When did I get wings? You've had them this whole time. Uh, it's the, the lazy writing. The secret was in you the whole time. So we are afraid of God liquefying me, but we don't really have to be afraid of God liquefying me because God is merciful and he is kind and he is loving and he's not out to beat you up. He's not out to liquefy you. So how do we get over the, the fear? How do we get over this, uh, uh, I don't, I don't want to walk out on this glass bridge? Well, we fill our heart with the goodness, the mercy, and the kindness of God. Because when I see love in Jesus' eyes, it is really hard to be afraid of him. I promise you, Jesus might seem a fearful to you, not fearful. Jesus might seem to be a reason that you need to be afraid, but it's just because you listen to people that don't know him. Trust me, I know him. He's kind, he's merciful, he's loving, he's compassionate. So we have uh, ignorance masquerading as fear, masquerading as apathy. Well, what else can stop a butterfly from uh, being transformed from a caterpillar? Well, how about a big nasty shoe? How many bugs have forfeited their destiny because you have wide feet? 
when I'm walking around catching Pokemon, I'm stepping on ants left and right, and you go through your entire life, and through no fault of your own, someone can come up to you and squish you with a big shoe. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything bad, but it happens. Someone steps on you, and so everybody expects you to fly around. It's like, well, it's hard because I've had a major setback. I think about uh, 2 Samuel 4. There's a story of a boy. There was a coup change. And if you can remember kind of what happened in Turkey, it's my last point. If you remember what happened to Turkey a few weeks ago, there was a military coup. One group of people was trying to seize power from another. Well, this was happening in the nation of Israel, and the ruling party was fleeing the palace for their lives. And this nurse picked up one of the heirs of the kingdom and started running out of the palace and tripped. Have you ever tripped? She tripped and fell on this little baby. And I don't know if it was a spinal injury or something about his legs broke. Well, he was paralyzed for the rest of his life. And in that day and age, there was no welfare program. There was no food banks. This guy, his name's Mephibosheth, had to beg for food to live. And every one of us can relate to that here. Every one of us has had something that's happened to us. I didn't do anything to cause this. What happens if you got born into a violent home? You are crippled by that circumstance. What happens if you've gotten crippled by a medical diagnosis or a mental disability? You didn't do anything wrong. That caterpillar had straight A's through caterpillar school, had a great work ethic, and got snuffed out. And it is hard to fly when you feel like you have a broken wing. But the rest of Mephibosheth's story is, is pretty amazing. David hears about this kid that's been crippled, and he sends out a royal envoy to go rescue Mephibosheth. Gives him a spot at, at the king's table, at David's table, and then restores to him all of the property that got stolen from him and all the income that came from it. So at the end of Mephibosheth's life, he's lost nothing but time. He is, at, he is sitting at the king's table, which is where he would have sat, and he is receiving the income off of lands that he would have inherited. David restored Mephibosheth. So every one of us in this room can relate to Mephibosheth in some way. Well, every one of us in this room can relate to David in some way. You have been born into a life of abundance in some form. Some of you have been born into a life of financial abundance. Some of you have been born into a life of joy abundance or love abundance or mercy abundance. What happens if we have a, an eye out for the people that have gotten hit by some big nasty shoe and we have the ability to bring someone up and sit them at our table. See, the amazing thing about the gospel is that Jesus is powerful. He is a miracle worker. He has the technology to rebuild us, to make us better than we were before. Better, faster, stronger. And he has given us this ability to rescue, to rebuild, to make someone better than they were before, to sit them from their table of lack to our table of abundance. So when we are sitting here in the church, we feel the broken wings that we have. Well, we come to Jesus and we have him restore us. But when we notice an area of abundance in our lives, we are on the lookout to go find someone to invite them to sit at the king's table. That's what we're doing at this, uh, at this Convoy of Hope uh, event. It's not so that we can feel better about ourselves. It's not so that we can mark our uh, uh, not-for-profit uh, box it's so that we can look for someone. It's like, ah, oh, through no fault of your own, you got squished by some big shoe. Come here and let me help repair your wing. Let me raise you up to a level that you have been destined for, that, that God has planned for you, and God gets to use me 
to have that uh, rebuilding, that resurrection process. So we're sitting here, all good Tennessee, church on the hill. What do we do? Well, we can step over all of the stuff that's making us be afraid of change. I'm, I'm telling you, this, transform, this transformative process is something that you want. We step over ignorance by meeting the people in the body with us, by learning amazing things about God. We step over apathy by filling our heart with the destiny that God has planned for us. See, the destiny, your, your past behind you is trying to let you know of all the different ways that you're failing, but Jesus is running in from your future, and I hate it for your past, but your destiny is way stronger than your past setbacks. So we step over ignorance, we step over apathy, and we step over fear, because who has time to be afraid? And we rescue people out of their broken wings, those little baby birds that have fallen out of the nest. We restore them back in the family. And God wants to use you. You are not just sitting here like a passive, um, I, one of the character coaches for the high school football team, which if anybody knows my knowledge about football is a farce. Um, it's a huge joke. But I get to sit on the sidelines, and only a few people can be on the, on the field any given time. And most of the, the freshmen and the underclassmen just sit there. They have to dress out. They have to wear the pads. They have to wear those sweaty, nasty, awful things for nothing. Well, that's not how God orchestrates a team. We all have the ability to resurrect the destiny that God has put inside of people that the enemy is trying to take out. So all hands on deck kind of thing. You have a job to do, not only at Convoy of Hope, this isn't a push for this, but as God transforms us, we get to transform the community around us. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we know that none of the good things that we have in our lives come from us. We are not the source of uh, amazing things. You are the source of amazing things. Father, thank you for rescuing us when we, are, when we experience life with broken wings. Father, thank you for seating us at your table, the table that we didn't feel like we deserved but you, re you researched and you found out that I am a part of a family that should have been at that table the entire time. And your gospel process is just restoring to me the destiny that you had in your heart from the beginning of time. Lord, I pray that you would help us this week, God, as we're experiencing life with each other, as we're making new friends, as we are uh, confronting challenges in our life. I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we would be able to see those little baby birds that have gotten kicked out of the nest. Father, open up our eyes that we would be able to see our brothers and sisters, our friends and family that have broken wings, that you have empowered us to rebuild, to resurrect, to make them better than they were before. Father, thank you for giving us this amazing power. We, we bless you in Jesus' name. Everybody have a fantastic week. I love you. I think the world of you. Have a good week.